welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. I want to ask you to take your Bibles tonight and find the, the book of Judges and chapter 5. Judges, chapter 5, and the Holy Scriptures. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 23 tonight. Judges 5, 11 through 23. I'm going to tell you, I believe this is an incredibly powerful text of Scripture. And um, it's meant a lot to me. So I want to deliver a sermon tonight, tonight, in part to my own self, because I have to preach this to myself on a regular basis. Um, and you'll see why as we unfold the story. The title of this sermon is, Why Did You Sit Among the Sheepfolds? Judges chapter 5, verse 11. And let me, let me tell you, about, before we read this, this is called the Song of Deborah and Barak. It's a victory song that celebrates, so they're singing a song celebrating the victory that we studied and learned about um, with um, victory over the Canaanites. All right, so it's a victory song. And here are the lyrics to it, starting at verse 11. At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors from Ephraim. Those whose root is in Amalek came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Machir, commanders came down. And from Zebulon, those who willed the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? To hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan, and why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulon was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, O oh my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hoofs beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. Curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord, utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? You know, my prayer for us as a church right now is that we would be a global impact church. In other words, I want us to be a church that has an impact around the world. I want us to impact Tuscaloosa, but also the United States and North America and the entire uh, planet have some influence somewhere in the world where the gospel is going forth as a result of 
the heart of the people at Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa. And if we're going to have that kind of a, a mission, if we're going to have that kind of an effort, it's going to have to be a team effort where every single member of the church is coming on board uh, and being a part of the team and embracing a, a, a view that we all have a role to play in what I would call the Great Commission fight. And we've been walking through the study of Judges and looking at these ancient texts that deal with battles and wars. And I wanted to, again, uh, remind you that we have already gone back and looked at how we should view these wars today because... We can't see that we're to fight against people, and obviously we're not fighting as a church against people in combat, and we're not even to be fighting against people at all. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Israel was given a specific command to go to war because they were God's agent of justice and agent of uh, judging these nations that had reached a point where God did not give them any further opportunity to come to him for salvation. They had had that opportunity. They had rejected repeated offers of the gospel. These Canaanite nations had heard about Yahweh. They had heard about grace. They had heard about the delivery from Egypt of the, the children of God. And they had that opportunity, like some of them took, to be saved. And so we know Israel was authorized to fight as God's agent. But the church is not authorized to fight people like this today. Our battles are spiritual, but they're not against lost people. They're against the ideas of lost people, and they're against sin, and they're against Satan. And the last time we were together, we talked about this. And we, we, When we go to war with people who are lost, we are actually fighting a battle that God has sent us to, to uh, we're fighting against people that God has sent us to actually share the saving message of grace with them. And so anytime we win battles, we're really losing the war if we're fighting uh, lost people. And so we need to realize we're fighting lost nests, not lost people. And we talked about this a whole sermon. And it's on our website where we went through and talked about the three enemies of us are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so I don't want to reconsider that whole sermon, but... We are in a war. We are in a battle. And it's a battle called the Great Commission battle where we're supposed to be involved personally as followers of Christ doing something to be a part of the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all the nations. And it's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. And it's a task where our weapon is the gospel. And we're to overcome lostness, not lost people, but lostness. It's a call to fight. And the question of the night is, are we in the battle? Are we doing our part? And we, um, we know the gospel is the only hope for the world. We know that people are enslaved to sin and nothing will change their life. Nothing will change the way they think. Nothing is going to restore their brokenness apart from the gospel and the, the message of that we need to come to Christ as Savior and Lord. All of that we know. And again, we know we're supposed to be going and making disciples. So the question is, are we making excuses? Like the people in the text that we just read. In the book of Judges, we've already looked at this cycle of sin. I've been calling the Ferris wheel of failure. Where the people of God, the, the, the Hebrews, Israel, they were... 
largely failing at being any kind of a positive light with the message of the gospel because their whole world was involved in a cycle of sin. We've called it the Ferris wheel of failure. And if you've been with us, we've talked about how they were in this cycle of idolatry. And rather than being witnesses, they were wrapped up in sin. And so it would start out, and I call it the Ferris wheel of failure because I'm terrified of heights. And the idea of being on a Ferris wheel is terrifying to me. And so the higher it goes, the scarier it is. The higher it goes, the more terrified I get. And if you're scared of heights, you can appreciate you don't want to be on a Ferris wheel. And the people of Israel were like me riding a Ferris wheel and that they were scared of heights, but they wouldn't get off of it. And they just kept going around and around. They started out at the bottom where it was pretty low to the ground. And they were like, hey... We really don't need God. Life is pretty safe where we're at, so we'll just kind of hang out and do our own thing. And as it got a little bit higher and they began to get involved in the idolatry of these other nations around them, as life began to get, at first it was kind of fun. It was like, hey, we're on a ride. It's kind of fun. And going up and up on the ride, at some point they went from being sin is fun and sin is cool to being sin is scary and I'm going higher and higher. And I can't get off this thing, and I don't know what to do. And they wouldn't call out to God. But finally, at the apex of the Ferris wheel, where they were so high and so terrified, they would finally cry out to God. And God, in His grace and mercy and gracefulness, would send a human judge to rescue them. And that this is the story of judges, and it's the story of many Christians' lives who are involved in a cycle of sin, and they won't get off of the, cycle, the, of the Ferris wheel of failure, and their, their life is an up-and-down cycle of uh, being at times in fellowship with God, maybe at the, you know, kind of riding down the, the, the part where you're coming down and you know you're going to be rescued and you realize God is so good and then you get to the bottom and you go through a period of complacency where you kind of are beginning now to look at the world and think, wow, the world is really pretty cool. Maybe I should chase after the idolatry of the world and the things of, you know, success and pleasure and homes and all these kind of things that are good things that can be corrupted and turned into idols in our life and things that we put too much emphasis on and become pursuits, that then they become idols in our life when they take a place that God only should have in our heart. And so the bottom line was this, that they weren't doing any witnessing. They weren't really in the fight at all. So some of the people here, you may be here tonight in your life, and I know I'm talking to a Sunday night crowd, but maybe there's one or two here tonight that your sin is just keeping you from having any kind of ability to witness whatsoever. And the only answer is get off the Ferris wheel of failure and get on the solid rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so the first many uh, reason many of these people, they were not in the fight, is just no more complex than sin in their life. But again, God was graceful, and God would rescue them. And just remember the three judges we've already learned about. Because the whole story of judges is a beautiful picture of God's grace. And every judge points forward to the ultimate Savior King. The, the, we've been through three. The first was Othniel. And Othniel was a, a man who there, we were not told anything about him in, that was negative in the Scriptures. And he points to the perfection of Christ, that he was the flawless judge, rescuer. He was the ideal Savior. Othniel was the one who seemingly had no flaws in his life. And as long as he was around, then everything seemed to be fine. 
And he points to the flawless nature of Christ, that Christ had to be sinless and was sinless in order to become sin on our behalf, not on his behalf. Christ was perfect in his life. And I, I say this to the young people there, sin, Christ never sinned. And he was the perfect sacrifice. Othniel was the, that perfect reflection of that coming Savior, the ultimate Savior. But guess what? Othniel died. And when Othniel died, the people reverted right back to their pursuit of idols. They got right back on the Ferris wheel of failure. And they needed a second Savior King to come to their rescue. And when they got at the, the height of their misery and sin and enslavement to sin, they called out. And it was Ehud who was the left-handed warrior who had a broken right hand. And we talked about how he was this, the weak warrior who everybody thought was a broken person, but it was his very brokenness that allowed him to be the South Paul Savior who used his left hand to defeat that king and drive that double-edged sword deep into the heart of the king until he was dead. It was the weak warrior made strong that reflects the, 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 the nature of Christ who would come in a surprising way. He would seem to be broken for our iniquity. By his wounds, we are healed. That's what it points to. That was the broken Savior. And then we had the third round of people, and that's Deborah and Barak. And they had, had to come to the rescue of the people because they were back on the Ferris wheel. And we studied about this a few weeks ago. Deborah was a prophet, and she was wise. Her name in Hebrew means wisdom of God. The pagan king they were fighting against, the Canaanite, was Jabin. And Jabin means we are wise. And so we have this contest between the wisdom of God and our wisdom, human wisdom, and Deborah as, is, a, is a type and a point or two, the ultimate Savior, King, Judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called in Messianic prophecy, the wisdom of God. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it reads, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding are upon Him. And so, again, we read in the book of... Uh, I love this text as it relates to the story... Because what ends up happening, of course, is the wisdom of God triumphs over the wisdom of man in the story of Deborah and Barak and Jabin. And it reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The story of Deborah and Barak reflects the superiority of God's wisdom and the cross over the philosophies and wisdoms of mankind. And so here's what happened in the story just to review you. Deborah is told by God that, that he, God's going to bring a victory to Israel and he need, that she needs to call Barak with 10,000 volunteer troops and to go up to Mount Tabor in the north and to fight Sisera. What well, sounds great, but the problem was Sisera had 900 iron tanks. You remember that story? Not tanks, but 900 iron chariots. But they were essentially like a tank. 
So you're out there with a slingshot, you're out there with a bow and arrow, and you're trying to hit a guy that's encapsulated inside an iron chariot. And by the way, he's got wheels on them with razor blades, and he's spinning all around you so that as you try to shoot him and you don't penetrate his iron tank, and he comes close to you, he just slices your legs all to pieces. And so these, the Jews were terrified of the iron tanks and that technology for good reason. But again, Deborah tells Barak, God is with us. Go up there, get volunteers. It was a scary thing to volunteer for, but 10,000 troops did volunteer. And we know those came from Ephraim and from, from these tribes of Zebulon. And so what ended up happening was they went up to Mount Tabor, and just about the time the fight's about to start, all of a sudden, this miracle occurs. They're on the uh, chariot, line up on an old dry riverbed where there's no water in it whatsoever, called the River Kishon. And the reason there's no water in it, it never rains at that time of year. And all of a sudden, this miracle thunderstorm breaks out from nowhere. And as we've seen in recent days, it can rain in an hour, three, four, five, six, seven inches, and they had a flash flood. And we know this because of the lyrics that we just read in verse 21 to the text. It says, well, verse 20, the stars fought from heaven. In other words, it was unseasonal. It was almost like it was the wrong time of year when it was actually supposed to be the rainy season, but it was the dry season. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, O my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hoofs beat. Sisera's horses fled from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. They were were bogged in mud. They were stuck in the mud. And miraculously, God pulls out a victory. And Deborah had told Barak, God is luring them into a trap. And so we have this miracle victory of God, which is just like what God always does in the Bible and should be doing in our lives, coming through. And then you have the completion of Deborah's prophecy. She said a man is not going to get the honor, but a woman will get the honor of the victory because um, a woman is going to take Sisera's life. And if you remember the story... A lady by the name of Jael, she is able to lure Sisera to, to go into her, her tent and hide out. But actually what she does is she drives a spike through his, his skull, crushing his skull. And it was a tent spike that she crushed his, the enemy warrior's um, Sisera's skull. And she points really to the unexpected Savior. Jael is a type for the Lord, that she was somebody who was able to have a surprise oppression and bring justice and restore justice where there was great oppression. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did, and he did it in a surprising way by crushing the enemy's mind. That's what he did in Genesis 3.15. God told Satan, he's going to crush your head. And this is a picture of that victory of Christ. And so all of these types of saviors, the beautiful picture of what we're seeing develop is God is in control. God is sovereign. God has a plan and God is working out and revealing who the ultimate Savior King is going to be. And so it leads to this victory song. We're at this beautiful victory song of Judges chapter 5. And you probably have never even heard a sermon preached on Judges 5, but it's a wonderful, this is the powerful nature of this sermon because what he begins to do here and what Deborah and Barak are singing 
are, are the lyrics to this song that have been given by the Holy Spirit. And it introduces a sort of a social setting of the culture of the day in verse 11. Verse 11 begins this cultural story of people sitting around a watering hole. Maybe a bunch of shepherds and a bunch of friends of local people, they come to where the, the flocks are shepherd, or, or the flocks are watered. And the shepherds gather to have this place to bring your sheep. And the lyrics of the song are saying, from now on, what we're recounting is, the so, in this social gathering place, we're recounting the victory of God in our culture. At the, verse 11 says, At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. And it goes from there. And we'll, we'll go there. But listen to me. I think that this is a picture of us in heaven. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but there's going to be times in heaven where we just sit around and recount God's victories on earth. There's going to be times when we're in heaven where people are going to sit around and say, hey, do you remember that time that we had that prayer need and God came through and won the victory at the last minute? Somebody share that story again. I want to hear that story. It's like, awake, awake. Hey, Rogers, awake, awake. Awake, awake, sing me a song, Rogers, about that time we were together and that thing happened again. Tell me that story again, Rogers. I want to hear it one more time. Wake up, brother. That's what they're doing here. They're telling Deborah, wake up and sing the song of victory again. And it pictures your life and it pictures my life at a time when we're going to be in a state of singing our victory song in heaven. I don't know if it's going to be actual watering holes. I picture campfires. I picture, because I, I picture, I don't know if there's going to be fires in heaven or not, but I, I hope there are. I hope there's campfires and star, and some kind of stars. I don't know if it, there'll be no day. You know, the Bible says there's no night. I don't know if we'll be able to see something at night at, at night. We don't really know if there's going to be these things or not, but whatever, there's going to be a, something like that that's a, a bunch of us standing around. Maybe we'll be like tailgating. <laughs> you know, on the quad of, you know, heaven. We're going to be together. We're going to be telling stories. That's what is pictured here. The faith of the people were being, were being recounted. They were saying, we want to sing the praises of Yahweh one more time because he's been so faithful to us. And they plea for Deborah to recount the story. And so she begins to do that. She begins in verse 12 to say, we went down with the sons of Abinoam. And the survivors came down to the nobles, the people of the Lord came down to me as warriors in verse 13. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek came down following you, Benjamin. You were there, Benjamin, with your peoples. And from Machir, commanders came down. And, and then it's great old Zebulon. Zebulon, you were there, man. You were, in the, you were in the fight. 
you were wielding your staff of office. And the princes of Issachar, you were there with Deborah in verse 15. And as with Issachar, so was Barak. And man, into the valley they rushed at his heels. That's good right there. We're coming off Mount Tabor, going into the mouth of 900 iron tanks, and we're rushing on the heels of our commander, Barak. They're running into battle. Do you remember that? Man, that was a glorious moment, brother. Woo! I remember it. I want to see that story again. I want to hear those victory stories about the things that happened in our lifetime that were the victories of God. Not about what we did, but what about God did for us and through us for His glory. That's what this story is about. It's a picture of what it's going to be like in heaven when all of us are sitting around recounting these stories. And what is the lesson for Christ followers? The lesson is God wins. And it's a blessing to be found on His side fighting in the battle of the Great Commission. And it's a curse on us if we resist the call to arms. Verse 23, what a, what a terrifying verse. Curse Meros, why? And by the way, this is the angel of the Lord. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. Curse Meros, said the angel of the Lord, utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. The lesson is that there's a blessing that you have an opportunity to either go for or to lose. And the question is, do you want anybody to say, why did you sit among the sheepfold? Why did you make an excuse not to go? The sheepfold was where the shepherds were at. But look what it says in verse 16. It says, why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? And what that is saying is the shepherds were watching the sheep and you didn't have to be there. And what you thought was necessary was for you to be there was actually you had no excuse. It's as if someone in heaven turns to me and I'll just use myself and says, David, why were you not there? Why did you not do your part in the victory? They're talking about Ridgecrest. You were the pastor at Ridgecrest. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds and listen to the and listen to the piping for the flocks? The shepherds were there. You didn't have to be there for that point. It's a picture of this story where they're saying people are beginning to make excuses. And so here's here's the reason this speaks to me. I'm about to go to Ecuador. If you don't know this, I really really would appreciate your prayers. Because I'm going to travel to Ecuador to be with my son Forrest and his wife Anna and a bunch of folks from the Southern, the Southern Baptist Seminary out of Louisville to teach theology to Ecuadorian pastors for a week. And I'm very scared about going down there. I'm not scared about the going and the, the people, but I don't like to travel. And you know why I don't like to travel? Because it's uncomfortable. And I've done it a lot, and I've gotten old enough that I don't really want to travel that much anymore. It's not like I'm chomping at the bit to go down there at all. 
I like to be comfortable. And what this is, is it's a call right here. It's it's a call saying. Are you making excuses that would keep you from doing what God is calling you to do and what you can do? That's the point of the text. And we begin to see these what I call five excuses that are made. For not being a part of the Great Commission. And the purpose of this text is to cause us to say, I don't want to be amongst those who have made unbiblical excuses. And some of you in this room, God may be calling to do some part. You may not be being called to go to Ecuador, but you may be being called to go to your neighbor or to somebody at work or to somebody you know. You may be being called to do something in this church. You may be being called to change your attitude to be more selfless in, in what we talked about this morning. And God may be saying, I do want you to reach a point in your life where you're actually talking to people in a, in a friendly and winsome way about the Lord and inviting people to church in an attractive way. It may start with that. It may be going with Eddie Larry on a mission trip. It may be going and doing something with our church that you've never done before. Taking your faith to a place where you're actually actively involved in the, in the fight so that church is more. And I, I so appreciate you being here tonight. But we want to make it more than just coming to church and leaving and not being changed. And so we begin to see these unbiblical excuses in verse 15. In the second part of verse 15, look at the, at the second part where it says, Among the divisions of Reuben there was great resolves of heart. Verse 16, Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? To hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. And so what we see in this is really a couple of excuses that I'm, that I'm prone to make. And the first one is, I can be like Reuben. I can say, I am real comfortable here in T-Town. And, um, you know, that's my problem. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to travel. I don't want to go sit on an airplane and not have any space and not have any control over my environment. And so I, I'm prone to make excuses like, well, I need to be here for, the, I got to pay the bills. I got to watch the house. I got to watch my mom. I got to watch the church. And that's why this verse speaks to me because it says, why did you sit amongst the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? In other words, when there were other people that were doing, watching the sheep. The sheep are all my responsibilities, even this church, but outside of this church. And so when, when I think about the fact that there are other people like Noel can watch the house and there's people that can watch my mom and there's Kevin and Pastor Brad to watch the church and the deacons are here to watch the church. I kind of have to cross out the I got to be here. I'm so important. Y'all can't get along without me kind of falls by the wayside. And so it contributes uh, some, well, let me come up with another excuse, Lord. Hang on. How about this one? Let me be like Reuben and say that there's divisions in my heart. And what that is, is an excuse saying, let me pray about it a little longer. Because I really can't decide. The people in the tribe of Reuben, they were, I just need to think about it, brother. You've got to add the brother or sister to it to make it sound official. And, you know, there is a place for praying and not jumping in without praying. 
There's a time for everything. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to pray, but there's also a time to act. And young people, I'm, I'm, you know, you may pray your way into a, a place where you never do what God's called you to do. And so Reuben had a tendency to say, I just can't decide. Let me think about it a little longer. And they thought and thought until guess what happened? The window of opportunity closed. That's why we can't sit and think and not act forever at Ridgecrest. Because there's windows of opportunity that will eventually close on us. The battle came and went before Reuben ever to decide if they were going to deploy into action. And so we have to call on God for strength. And at some point, if God is calling you, see, he's calling me to go to Ecuador. And I want to go to help these people and teach. I'm going to be teaching theology, which is my passion. So I'm pretty excited about the fact I'm going to be standing in front of 25 Ecuadorian pastors talking about the Trinity. Now, that gets me fired up. And I'm excited about that. I just don't want to go through the trouble to have to get there. And I don't uh, like that. But I decided at some point that um, this kind of had an, op- had an opportunity to do this. It's been something I felt a burden to do for a long time, for about five or more years. Because my heart is for pastors that don't have good theological training and don't have access to it. Because I just know how hard it would be to preach if I hadn't had theological training to understand the Bible. And so basically, at some point, we've got to make a decision and take a leap of faith. But there's more excuses. There's a third excuse. Gilead had a good excuse in verse 17. Verse 17, Gilead remained across the Jordan. Their excuse was, hey, that's none of my business. That's way over there. I don't even live in that part of the world. I, I'm a, I live across the Jordan. What's that to me? Who are they to me? They're just people. They're just human beings created in the image of God. What is that to me? God wanted them saved. He just sent them to Alabama where we have a hundred billion churches. It's none of my business. So the tribe of Gilead were saying, well, let's just take care of our own. That's their problem. We've got enough lost people in Alabama. We don't need to worry about people on the other side of the Jordan. So we have to be careful. So these folks are so far away, um, they're using that as an excuse. And Gilead was called to the fight, and that was a, a rebuke, really. By the Lord. And it says, verse 17 continues about Dan. It says, and Dan says, they stayed in their ships. And that's kind of difficult to explain how that's an excuse unless you know who Dan is and what their background is. Dan was a tribe that made their living in an economy by trading. So their economy was based on trading with the pagan nations. And their primary trading partner were the Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians were linked very closely to the Canaanites. And so what Dan said was, if we go to war against the Canaanites, that's going to affect our ability to trade with the Phoenicians, and that's going to affect my wallet. My wallet goes from being fat to being less fat. And the bottom line was, I can't make that financial sacrifice It cost me personally. 
And so sometimes we use an excuse for not being involved in God's work that it's going to cost me personally. And just like Kevin said, he used the word sacrifice. He was dead right. I mean, some of what we're having to do is going to be a sacrifice. I paid, by the way, to go to Ecuador. It cost $2,000. And so I paid $2,000 to go to Ecuador to teach guys about the Trinity and to try to encourage them and pour into their life and to, and to say, God has called you to this and he'll see you through it. And, and God is a God of, of, of global power and he'll be with you and help you. And there is a cost to it. And so we have to um, ask the Lord for strength and courage to make those kind of sacrifices. And then finally, Asher um, is mentioned in verse 17. And it says, and Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. And so Asher was a tribe that was a, a tribe that liked to live on the sea. They liked the seashore and they particularly liked their harbors. And a harbor was a safe place in a storm. A harbor is a place that when in the Mediterranean Sea, when the winds and the storms blew up, you could just be in there and you knew life was safe. And so their, their priority and their focus in life was on personal safety. And Asher said, I don't know if this is safe. And the question we have to ask is, what is the difference between recklessness and God's will? And we, I mean, God certainly does not want us to be reckless, but on the other hand, He certainly does not want us to be fearful of, and when He calls us to it, He'll see us through it. And so we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and we don't want to tempt God. You know, God, I'm going to go jump off a, a cliff, or, and you have to rescue me before I hit the ground. That's tempting God, but it's, and that's unsafe and recklessness. But what God was calling these people to was a, a war where he had promised them victory and that he promised them he would be with them and ultimately they would be victorious because they had faith in God. They had eternal life. And I could go on and on about this, but let me just end it by saying I've lived long enough to have people in my life tell me that going on mission trips is not a safe thing to do only to watch them die from disease within a few years of telling me that. And in my understanding of theology, the safest place in the world is the center of God's will. And so the key is to hear God's call and then to fight for God in the Great Commission, in God's power, trusting God for safety and security and commending yourself into his hand for eternal salvation. In verse 18, it says the faithful response of Zebulon was commemorated. People who despised their lives even to death when it came to the purpose of God. Naphtali was honored for their undaunted courage. And so the, the endings of the story is, what is God calling us to? What is God calling you to individually? That we need his strength and power and courage to do in order to obey his call to the Great Commission and not make excuses. I'm going to ask you to bow and enter a time of prayer. And I just want to, tonight, why don't we um, just have Miss Jan, you play some music for us, if you would. Um, let me just let her play tonight, Kevin.
And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to call you into a time of reflection, just like we did earlier. And let's pray together. Lord, we want to be a church of people who don't make excuses. We don't want to be people who find ourselves in a cycle of idolatry. And we don't want to be people that, even though we may not be in a cycle of idolatry, we're making excuses in our life that are unbiblical, refusing to take our faith to a point in life where we're going through that open door where your presence is at. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.